0: It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. 2020 seems an amazing year. Uh, the former president of Harvard, Larry Summers, has called it a hinge in history. We seem to be on the brink of enormous social change, everything from changes in capitalism to how we view each other to, uh, to, to, to personal hygiene. Um, but the real question is, will 2020 turn out to be 1848, a year which promised much change and didn't change anything? Will it be 1989 or perhaps 1789 all over again? Uh, one guy who's given a lot of thought to how social change happens is the prolific uh, Harvard law academic uh, Cass Sunstein. Um I'm not sure if it's fair to call him a law academic. He is just Mr. Prolific. I think he has written more in more fields than anyone in the world. Uh, Cass, before we begin to talk about 2020, how do you do it? How, How are you so prolific?
1: Well, when I have downtime, thank you for saying that, when I have downtime, I tend to write rather than seeing what's in the refrigerator. And while I spend a fair bit of time looking to see what new television shows are up on Netflix or Amazon or movies, uh, I don't spend a whole lot of time on those things. Do you sleep? Yeah, I sleep a a lot, eight, eight hours, nine hours. I'm I'm rarely up in the middle of the night. If there's something that has a a deadline, I might stay up till midnight, but that's unusual. My dogs sometimes get me up at 5.30, and then I might write between six and seven, but no one should read what I write then, and I tend not to publish it.
0: Uh, And on top of all this, I won't won't tell everyone your age, but you were born in 1954. Uh, You're a world-class squash player. Uh, Cass, in all seriousness, Does your life or the model of your life, it's really a a remarkably distinguished life in terms of your academic achievements, the amount of writing, your academic positions. Is it a lesson in social change, in how we shape and reshape ourselves? Well, I don't think my life is that, though I thank you for the very generous words.
1: Certainly anyone who's lived more than 10 years now has observed significant social change. I had the uh, good fortune to clerk for the American Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall when I was in my young 20s and I learned from him a bunch of things about social change and public opinion and law and the rapidity of things. So if you've been around even a sh- short while uh, and you keep your eyes uh, open and
0: ears on the alert you'll you'll see some things about how things can turn around in a hurry. What's your sense on 2020, uh, Cass? Is it going to be another 1848, a year of infinite promise where nothing changes? Or is this really, as your Harvard colleague Larry Summers suggested, a hinge in history? I think the point
1: about history that maybe my great friend and colleague Summers misses is that uh, when you're in the midst of history, Whether things turn large or not large often depends on serendipity and relatively small things that snowball into massive things. So to say because of, you know, Uh, a pandemic or because of a keen interest in equality, we have um, things shifting very rapidly right now, is probably premature. It's really hard to know what's when you're in the midst of it.
0: Your last book uh, was entitled How Does Social Change Happen? You're also with the co-author of uh, a book that I think all our audience will know, Nudge. You co-authored with Richard Thaler, the a behavioral economist who won the Nobel Prize. Uh, so very simply, Larry, uh, not Larry, that was a Freudian era, a Cass, Uh Very simply, at a time where we seem to be on the brink of all this social change, how does it happen?
1: Well, it often happens as a result of cascade effects, where there's one person who visibly does something. Let's say they refuse to Sit in the legally required place in a bus, or let's say they say climate change is you know a really big problem, and I'm a teenager, and I'm going to do whatever I can to counteract it. Or they may say, I've been in real estate for a long time, but I'm going to run for president. Or they might say, I was a community a- a- a organizer and I have dark skin and my name's Barack Obama, but I'm going to run for president. So they may be people who become really famous. They may be people who uh, start something, but other people see them and join them. And often that produces, you know, at the cultural level, something like Taylor Swift or the Beatles, both of whom are fantastic, but could have uh, actually disappeared into uh, nothingness if they hadn't gotten lucky. So greatness isn't enough, and both Swift and the Beatles have that, but they got lucky. And the same is true of Obama and Trump and movements for civil rights and movements for um social uh, change of, of many sorts, so the basic point is little things like who sees what at what time, who crosses whose path when, who gets visibly excited by someone and someone else sees them getting excited that's where history's uh, hinge often can be found
0: ha, ha, Have you noticed? Uh, a little thing that other people might have overlooked in 2020, someone not moving to the back of a bus. Uh, I mean, we're obviously living in in an age of, of enormous potential upheaval, Black Lives Matter in particular. But are there little things going on that you're seeing that others are missing? I doubt it. But there's a term that might be a good
1: umbrella term, which is unfortunately got a lot of syllables. It's called multiple equilibria. And the idea is that societies often stabilize along one path which could have been very different. So we might see an equilibrium, let's say, with respect to race relations or democracy or environmental policy or the pandemic in one place that's very different from the equilibrium in another place. And that what caused the equilibrium that we observe in, let's say, Denmark, or the very different one that we observe in Sweden, is a product of uh, one or two things that tended to turn into big bursts of, you know, flowers or weeds or something. And that, that's what I'm kind of observing now with respect to politics and music and, um, and uh, reactions to mask wearing.
0: Your How Does Social Change Happen begins, you begin your book uh, with an anecdote when you were teaching, uh, I think at Columbia Law School, and, uh, an experience of sexism which now would be totally unacceptable in the university. Today, the universities seem to be immeshed or embroiled in a, in a huge debate about freedom of speech. Uh, we've had a number of people on, on this show, including uh, Brett Stevens and Yasha Munk, talking about the challenges to free speech, both from the right and the left. You're at Harvard. What do you, I mean, obviously, the, the school isn't running at the moment, but are you seeing... Uh, a great change in our understanding of free speech coming from within the university in 2020?
1: Absolutely not. Uh, I do think that there's an issue, and I'll get to it in a moment, but that it's crazily exaggerated, uh, partly because it's so attention-grabbing. It's kind of the highbrow equivalent of uh, dog bites man or there was a fire on the street, meaning it's surprising. But It's actually not defining. So at the university I teach at, Harvard, if you want to say, you know, that – Trump is great. He's doing a fantastic job and I want to go work for him. Uh, That's completely fine. I have a research assistant, one of my best, who thinks that and says that. If you want to say that, you know, Trump is the worst president ever we've ever had, uh, that's completely sayable. Also, Uh, it may be that if you say certain things that uh, particularly that are, uh, let's say somewhere between hateful and insensitive with respect to race or gender, uh, there will be uh, backlash against you. But the idea that this is this is what the problem ailing uh, the world today or the United States today—it's uh, not—it's not not one of the top ones. Now it should be that people are free to say a whole assortment of things, and in some contexts, people are less free in the. Uh, kind of metaphorical sense, meaning there will be social norms that will uh, uh, come down on them if they say something with respect to race or gender. And that, that's not, for some of those things they want to say, it's not good that the norms will punish them. That is an issue. But, uh, you know, it's not like people are dying or people are being uh, hurt by the police or being shot by their neighbors or being locked up. It's a lot, a lot better
0: than that. People are dying, of course, though of COVID nineteen. And one of the great public debates, particularly in the United States, is about how we should behave in public, particularly with respect to masks. Uh, what does the the Cass Sunstein, who co-authored Nudge, argue about how to encourage people to wear masks uh, and not pass on uh, the pandemic and and, and compound the the terrible misery that many have experienced this year?
1: Uh, The first thing is to make it easy. So if people have a hard time finding or getting masks, that's a big problem. So kind of behavioral economics 101 is if people aren't doing something that's in their interest, find out why and remove the obstacle. So availability is the simplest thing. Uh, The second thing is social norms. So if you live in a place, as I do, where everyone basically is wearing a mask, even if you don't want to wear a mask, if you go out without one, people are going to stare at you and maybe say something. And that's an incentive based on the norm. Wear a mask. You're going to get in trouble with your neighbors. There are other places, by contrast, where if you wear a mask, you're kind of confessing that you are sick or that you're a terrified person or that you're one of them where the relevant them aren't very popular. And those are the places where we really need to work in terms of nudging on social norms. And there are ways to do that. So to connect with, let's say, cultural identity. Um, In Texas, they made a great effort over the last 30 years or so with significant success to reduce littering through a slogan, don't mess with Texas. And that's a very inventive slogan. Because it connects the anti-literary movement with your identity as a Texan. And so to see what would happen in a place like, let's say, Tennessee, which is known as the state of volunteers, the volunteer state, to connect with that heritage uh, in terms of mask wearing, you can make it credible by getting people who have... Trust in the relevant communities, both in terms of who they are and also in terms of what they know, then you can see movement in, in a hurry.
0: Can we encode the philosophy of nudge in law? Uh, as a law professor, law expert, um, you, you bring a, a particular perspective to behavioral economics. Should there be more nudge in the law? I was privileged to work in
1: the White House for four years. I was uh, uh, given the uh, position of uh, overseer of federal regulation in terms of environment and highway safety and food safety and occupational health and to some extent immigration and homeland security. And uh, sure, so a lot of the legal rules that are in place in the United States and the United Kingdom and Germany and France and Italy are, uh, are nudges. So I'll give you a couple of examples. If you buy an automobile in the United States, there's a fuel economy label. And it tells you something about the environmental consequences of good fuel economy, and it tells you something about the economic consequences. It's basically, a nudge to get a fuel-efficient car. If you are, um, when schools were in session, if you are uh, poor, you are nudged to. Uh, enjoy, that might not be exactly the right word, but to benefit from a program that gives you free school meals. And the nudge takes the form of automatic enrollment. You don't have to take advantage of it, but you're nudged. All over Germany, there's uh, uses of nudges in law uh, to encourage um, uh, safer choices and environmentally uh, better choices. They may take the form of reminders. They may take the form of information disclosure. They may take the form of, of warnings. And that's pervasive all over the world, and it's all encoded in law. Get a little technical just for the moment that contract law is full of nudges in the form of default rules, which say if the parties don't specify, let's say, the time of performance or who has to do what, to, some things are going to kick in by default. Now, you can contract around them, which is to say they're just nudges. They're not band-aid. but the default rule often turns out to matter a whole lot and a lot of law in England and the United States really is nudges in the form of default rules.
0: Cass, you're one of the early people to warn about the impact of the digital revolution on democracy. Your republic.com 2.0 is very influential, actually quite influential in my work as well. Um, To what extent is this increasingly ubiquitous internet, which is able to watch over us in every sense, where we reveal everything we do and think through the distribution of our data. To what extent could this enable the the nudge movement, the nudge philosophy, to turn into a Chinese-style technocratic authoritarianism?
1: It could.
0: So let's talk about the good side first and the
1: less good side second. So you could be nudged by, um, you know, a social media provider to uh, provide uh, uh, help to people who need help, like on your birthday. You'd be nudged. You want to create some charitable contributions. And Facebook is actually doing that. And my understanding is a ton of money is going to charity as a result of that nudge. And it's not at all intrusive. You can say, I want to keep my money. I don't want to create a charity. Or I don't want to ask my friends to give to charity. But if you feel that's a good thing to do on your birthday, you're nudged. That's a great thing. Uh, there are lots of ways that people are nudged uh, by... Uh, apps and other things to take care of their health. Uh, It can be about paying attention to what they eat. It can be about paying attention to uh, their weight. It can be paying attention to their heart. And a lot of people's lives are being lengthened by nudges of that sort. Um, There are nudges online. I think Google is doing this to uh, make sure you really want to send an email that looks like it's full of rage and anger. There's an algorithm, I believe, that uh, pretty good at detecting that and says are you sure you want to send this and th- that's a pretty good thing um not as good as saving someone's life but it may be a good way of preserving a relationship so that's positive um it is also the case that um people who are interested in money can nudge you to depart from your own for the sake of them. Something called dark patterns online where they can automatically enroll you in something by which you are giving up your money without really full consent, and that's a big problem. Uh, With respect to government and technocratic terribleness, it's surely the case that an authoritarian government, if it's agile, can take uh, advantage of what it knows about your online movements to monitor you and to track whether you are, let's say, with the program which may be a grave threat to uh, uh, freedom, where your liberty of movement is threatened because the government has rightly discovered that you're not as loyal to it as it would like. So that is is a worry. Uh, I'm not sure it would belong on the list of the top five things to worry about from authoritarian governments. Uh, The top ones might be killing people or jailing them, but it might be an instrument for something like that. So it does belong on the list of, of of future threats.
0: Your new book, which will be out, I think on the 1st of September, is called Too Much Information, Understanding What You Don't Want to Know. Is this uh, Cass Sunstein's critique of the internet and of our digital economy and of of, of, of curating information? What are you arguing in your new book? So I'm pausing
1: over my own judgment and calling my book "Too Much Information." That might not be the best sales strategy. People might think, "Why would I want a book that (laughs) advertising (laughs) this stuff has too much (laughs) information?" Nonetheless, what's done is done. Uh, The thesis of the book is that uh, we are often given information that may not be useful to us and that may make us sad or scared. And that when evaluating whether information ought to be provided, we should focus like a laser on two questions. One, does it help us live our lives better? And two, how does it make us feel? And that if we focus like a laser on those two questions, we can have more clarity about what sort of information it's good to provide and what sort of information it's actually going to be helpful to provide. Because if it's information that makes us miserable or scared, we may or may not benefit from it. And along one dimension, we're definitely going to lose because we're enjoying our day less. The question, the main question in the book is whether when private and public institutions are providing information, they are uh, seeking to make the lives of the recipients better. And the only way to answer that is to ask what people can people do with it? And how does it make people feel about how their day is going or their month? And if we look like that, we'll be able to be much smarter about things like helping people avoid the risk of cancer, or helping people avoid the risk of COVID-19, or helping people who are, let's say, in not exactly safe workplaces to avoid um, uh, getting hurt or killed. I'm also concerned about government itself obtaining too much information And here, the point in this book, at least, isn't fundamentally about technocratic authoritarianism. It's about government making people go crazy by asking them to fill out forms and stand in line and deal with processes that often defeat the goal of obtaining training, obtaining education, obtaining a visa, obtaining a job. I call it sludge, and the idea is that sludge reduction might be added to the Declaration of Human Rights as a entitlement that human
0: beings have in a free society. Uh, Finally, uh, Kaz, Kaz, uh, perhaps this is part of the the sludge process. Uh, Everyone should read your last book, How Does Social Change Happen? And I hope everyone will get your new book, Too Much Information. But uh, you might Give us a couple of suggestions at the end of this interview uh, as, as, as part of the anti-sludge process. Suggest a book that will help us and, and a book that will make us feel better as we're all stuck inside and uh, uh, on top of all your work. Okay. So let's talk about
1: feeling better first. And th- the book for that is uh, Bayat's book Possession which is, in my view, the best novel in the English language in the last 50 years. And it's a work of surpassing beauty. It's funny. It's about the meaning of life. Uh, and it hits hard in the best way, the depths of the human soul. So, yeah, It's a the- wonderful
0: book, A.S. By its Possession. Yes, that is an excellent suggestion.
1: And the second is more recent, which is uh, called the, uh, the Essex Serpent, uh, which is a spectacular book uh, in the general, same general genre as Possession. And it's a romance, and it's got a little uh, mystery in it, and it's fabulous, and it won a lot of prizes. So that's number two in terms of feeling good. In terms of usefulness, there's a book by Caroline Webb Called "How to Have a Good Day," which is um, a brilliant book of uh, humanity and wit about how to focus your day on things that will make you smile rather than cry, and be productive rather than uh, than not. And what what Webb's book is uh, amazing at is compressing a lot of social science. Uh, learning into an extremely pleasing delightful package where on almost every page you you kind of laugh with recognition about something which you really hadn't recognized before except at some part of your brain that she's lighting up
0: you've been listening to Keynote hosted by me Andrew Key make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at Lithub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.